It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. There's a chapter called a crude form of seduction, which is what a um, Brisbane-based clinician told me he calls that transaction where um, men might you, men might sort of attract women using drugs or women are using men because they get the drugs. Um, I, I think, personally, I was attracted to much older men and it was because they had the drugs and because it was like a, a big package, you know. They were, they were men and they had the drugs. So I was actively seeking them out. So it wasn't like I was coerced into taking drugs. But that, that does then create this power imbalance. What are the differences and the nuances with women and substance use? And also treatment, recovery. What words should we use? What's appropriate? How are women affected? What's the differences? This and so much more with Jenny Valentish and Millie Charles. We're going to be on Stop and Search on Scribbles Pips Distraction Pieces Network, brought to you by ACAST in association with UK. Here we go. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Behind your barricades. Where true love seldom Thank you so much for joining us and we're basing this one around women of substances a journey into drugs alcohol and treatment that's a book by jenny valentish who is an amazing journalist she comes from uk but now lives in australia and she pretty much opens up about her entire life it could be a film it's so well written she opens up about her lived experience about treatment about where substance use took her the differences between men and women in substance use and also, within this podcast, you'll notice we discuss language quite a lot. Our other guest, Millie Charles, who is a radio presenter and producer, if you go to BBC Radio 4 Women's Hour, you'll see a series called The Fix, which Millie produced. And it looks at the recovery sector and how women are impacted and affected. And that word there, recovery. Jenny's not a fan where Millie is. And they've both got lived experience themselves. Both are very open about their own substance use and addictions. And this is crucial. This is what we need to understand. We need to hear from people with lived experience. It's all well and good having experts, but we actually need proper experts, those that are willing to speak about their own experiences. So let's do that. Let's listen to people that have actually been through substance use treatment and let's see what the differences are. So this, this is Stop and Search. Let's go straight in with Women of Substances. 
I get sent a lot of books now, and I thought, right, I've got to get through this quickly. And it wasn't a chore at all, which is a really bad-handed compliment, <laughs> but it was so, so well-written. Yeah, it is really, Thanks, really it. good. Really brilliant. Which I'll, I'll say more when we start, but and I'll, I'll probably repeat this, but Jenny says, I think it's in the book or an article, um, that she wanted to write a novel, but then it turned into being about Jenny's life story, and it might as well be a novel. Actually, I wrote a novel as well, which turned into my life story, but it, oh. it looked like it was about a pop band, but it, it tended to be the themes that wound up in this, so I was trying to get these themes out of my system, thinking, don't write about yourself, that would be a nightmare, <laughs> because as a journalist, I'd never written about myself. Um, but then it wasn't enough writing a novel, so it had to come out. Oh, really? So by hook or by crook, yeah. Still pending. It, it's pended. But what I'd like to do, if it's all right, can I get you to do your own introductions? So I'm Jason Reed, blah, 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 host, thingy, majiggy, bringer of cookies. Jenny. I'm Jenny Valentish. I'm a journalist. I grew up in Slough, and now I live in Australia. And um, I've written a book called Women of Substances, a journey into drugs, alcohol, and treatment. And Millie. Um, I'm Millie. I'm a freelance radio producer, and I made a series um, which was authored from my own experience about uh, women and addiction. I think that the first question that I'd like to ask is that whenever we do something that's predominantly based on women, there is typically a bit, and it's only a small amount, of Twitter backlash from angry men saying, when's the men event? Why do we need a women's event? So can we explain why it is really important that we have a discussion on women and substances and treatment? There was one uh, article about women of substances in particular that went on Facebook, and there are about 300 comments, um, many of them from men, saying... Um, this is ridiculous, addiction affects everybody exactly the same. Um, and it was very tempting to sort of jump in and you know, do a link to the bibliography of 300 studies that I'd crunched for the book to say, well, actually, no, like, this is why it's gendered. Um, but it does reflect what I was learning about research and treatment in particular, um, which is that uh, addiction is widely and mistakenly considered to be still a male domain. And so you can sort of aim treatment or, or do your research aimed at the male experience and then uh, the women are kind of like mini-men and that should apply to them too. And so I was learning throughout the book from, from academics and researchers I was interviewing that they had been actively discouraged from um, exploring women's issues um, yet there was a massive uh, study from the University of New South Wales uh, in 2006, 16, sorry, which looked at studies from across the world, uh, different countries looking at men and women's um, drug and alcohol rates. Um, and with alcohol in particular, they found that not only are men and women drinking equally now, but women born after 1981 have uh, outgrown men, are going faster so um, we've still got this very archaic view that addiction is a male domain, but it's not. And, and Millie, your radio series on Women's Hour, um, I listened to it last night in complete uh, succession. It was just so good because I thought I knew this subject, but then after listening to your radio show, I realised there was points I really didn't. Mm. So how, what was the inception of that? When, 
and why did you get into producing that show? Um, well, um, so I um, ba have battled with addiction my whole yeah, throughout my life, um, uh, other other issues as well. Um, but we'll come to that later. But um, I, when I got into long term recovery. Um, I went to uni and I started learning um, uh, about sort of feminist media theory and all this sort of stuff and and um, and sort of you know started educating myself and, and learning about the world I was in and started noticing things in a different way and I looked I was attending I go to twelve step meetings that's how I how I stay clean um, and my and you'll notice mine and Jenny's language around this subject is very different as well that, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, so I I'm in twelve step recovery and and I was in a meeting um, and I just looked around the room and it was literally just I looked I looked around me and there were about eighteen men and three women. Um, and it just was a commonly known thing. Oh, it's hard to find other women in recovery. It's hard to find, uh, you know, other women to guide you in recovery. Um, and this was just like a, a sort of a fact. And I and I wanted to find out why. And I I knew. I mean, the first thing I found out was that less women become addicted in the first place. But that didn't really account for this massive discrepancy that I was seeing. Um, so I started looking into it more, um, and that was kind of how the the idea for the series came about. Um, obviously, by this point, I was, you know, working um, in radio and in a position to sort of pitch ideas. And, um, yeah, so that was, like, how it came about, really. Um, the more I sort of looked around, the more I realised there was this also, like, a massive lack of knowledge and studies and some things were just accepted like this is just the way it is there just are less women and you know um and I didn't I didn't that I didn't want to accept that really so yeah how, how difficult is it to balance your professional life with your personal life the fact that you have got your own experiences in this as I said we'll get to that mm. but also the fact that was it a help to you to have that your own background within it in your work or was it kind of almost a, a reopening of wounds um, that's interesting, actually. It was like, I mean, it was absolutely key. I mean, my lived experience is like my expertise in a sense. You know, this is like, um, and I think that that, um, it, it was really lovely that um, Women's Out, that I, who I worked with, really valued that as expertise. Um, because obviously there were things I could explore that just weren't documented, um, that I knew from my li from my experience, from my friend's experience. You know, I've um, spent years in this, world of recovery treatment um, addiction you know and so there were things that I knew about that aren't documented in the media in um, in academia um, so they valued that lived experience and and obviously the fact that I've, I've had lots of contacts you know that's always yeah. useful um, <laughs> there was certainly I mean certainly you know there was I think you know it's gone both ways at certain points you know depending on where I've been you know sometimes it is it can be I think it's been really healing, actually. I think it's been really healing for me, um, in a sense. Yeah, I mean, it's, there is always a bit of a conflict because of... Yeah, I don't know. There's, mm. There always feels like a little bit of a conflict, and it, it changes. Sometimes it's a really good thing. Sometimes I just... I've, I've tried to find a balance in my life where I have a little bit of escapism where I'm not just talking about drugs, prison and yeah, trauma sure. as well. <laughs> it's always like nice. So I've started doing a lot more music stuff since then, which is quite nice. Bit of escapism. producing Blue Planet. Yeah. Fish. Yeah. And I think as well, that applies to you, Jenny, as well, is that within this book, um, it is 
written like a novel. You know, your life is like a novel. It's just so enticing and enthralling. And it's just, how much of it have you ever thought of yourself as an expert or have you suffered with imposter syndrome throughout your life that writing a book like this, you think, do I deserve to be in a position of... Because I know it's like we've got similar personality types, all three of us, when we've spoken on the phone, and I suffer with imposter syndrome. I'm fairly sure that we've all got a similar streak in that. Is it a case of that your your book was... I think you know what I'm getting. I'm kind of rambling a little bit, but it's was there imposter syndrome that went with it? Yes. So, um, <laughs> Thank you for bailing me out. <laughs> uh, I don't have imposter syndrome when it comes to writing per se but so this is uh, this book is a, a hybrid it's um, half memoir and half um, research and each chapter has a theme that relates to women and addiction or women in treatment and and then my life I'd, I'd comb my back catalogue for um, vignettes of awful and use that to illustrate the points um, so it meant that I had to find all these um, researchers and neuroscientists and clinicians and people who work on the front line from scratch. Even as a journalist, I was actually a music journalist. Um, so literally, when I first started trying to find people, I was Googling professor <laughs> comorbid eating disorder substance use. And, you know, I might find someone... I think actually the first person I found was Professor Steve Olsop, who's, who's really into policy. So he schooled me on language. He gave me a good overview of harm minimization and that kind of thing. And then from there, each, each kind of expert I found would recommend another one. But I was worried that they would be, that they would be worried because they, they knew that I was the case study. Um, and you think, God, did, are they going to think that I'm on a loose cannon? Um, you know, I know they work in the fields of drug, drugs and alcohol, but it doesn't mean they don't have uh, a judgment, perhaps. Um, so, I, of course, I wouldn't say to them, you know, well, your specialty field is impulsivity. I used to be really impulsive. I used to do this yeah. and that. You know, I'd keep myself out of the interview and I'd make sure I really knew, I'd read, you know, a lot of their relevant papers. But still, there was a concern there's a hierarchy of worry while writing this book. And that was a concern, like, would, would people worry that wasn't representing them properly? And then, you know, do, do academics have their kind of nemesis academic somewhere else? So I've chosen this academic to talk about temperament. And what, what about if the book comes out and their nemesis is saying, well, that's rubbish, you know? Because I was going in blind and just picking people, thinking, yeah, They've, they've written some good papers, and I was trying to put together this overall picture of women in drug and alcohol use, thinking, yeah, uh, my instincts are telling me I'm going the right way, but am I stitching together this Frankenstein's monster? You know, is it going to make sense when the whole thing is finished? Um, but it's been out in Australia for a year now, and it's been really well received within the alcohol and drug sector, and I know that a lot of it's been given out as sort of homework to, to clients and, the, and it's even given as homework, as homework to, um, you know, counsellors and clinicians and it's on a few university reading lists. So the instinct was right, but of course you have that imposter syndrome when you don't have that kind of academic background. Have we got any academics in tonight? Because this is this is always something in our work as well that we find there's lived experience versus academia, and sometimes they don't always balance up. But our own perceptions can lead us to a certain conclusion. And I think is is there a danger sometimes that we can minimise lived experience in favour of 
stats and 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 that's probably going to be a really contentious subject for an academic because we're always getting into those realms of you know um what's what's the phrase that we use uh, the plural of anecdote isn't data um but unfortunately we do need to have testimony um mm. so is it, is it difficult to strike that balance it is now i'm in interview mode because i'm sort of I'm veering away from personal story because it became really taxing talking about it for a start. Mm. You know, going onto a radio show when you've got eight minutes and just being shoved into a chair, expected to cough up a furball of trauma, and then you're out, and they haven't even made eye contact, probably. Um, so I'm, I'm trying to draw on the research when I do interviews and give, you know, the bigger picture scenario, but then, yeah, it probably does come through a bit dry, and then you look back at interviews and you think... they. The audience needed that relatable aspect. You know, they, they needed some anecdote or they needed you to admit that something was really difficult. And I'd sort of been gradually veering away from doing that for my own well-being. And that must be where you come in, Millie, of pre the presentation of argument and facts and figures is just as important as the actual subject itself. And in, within your series, you've, if, if anybody hasn't listened to it, listen to Women's Hour, The Fix. There's, there's a few different sections, isn't there? There's a bit on women in addiction, but there's also coming out of prison as well, isn't there? And that's it. That was like the series I did before. So I did a series before about women leaving prison and then one specifically about um, uh, women and addiction. And there's actually going to be a couple more coming out soon that I've got waiting to be released um but yeah um how was it trying to balance that presentation side of it so you know that you need the you know the kind of as, as jenny said the juicy mm. furballs that people kind of cough up but at the same time it's such a sensitive issue that you just yeah. you feel like you're being intrusive surely well I, I definitely like wanted to you know you know thoroughly research it and give it you know as as much sort of academic credential and I spoke to experts and and stuff but I think the the big thing you know the big thing was that there was a massive lack of research and information and that was something that academics was telling was saying to me as well and um like Jenny you're just saying that you you know you talk to someone about impulsivity and then you wouldn't say I used to be really impulsive well, I did do I did do that with quite a lot of academics like, oh well when I took da, 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 <laughs> I thought it was you know or, or my mate and I, you know but like that was um but really I mean I, I found that everyone was very supportive because I was actually I, you know I was coming I was interested in um uh, evidence-based stuff as well as lived experience and trying to kind of marry the two really um, uh, and I think and I wasn't um, at, when I first started making it I wasn't necessarily going to author it I wasn't gonna I was just gonna make a, a series where I'm a kind of impartial balanced reporter um, but then I mean stigma came up as such a big thing and I thought if I but also just felt so inauthentic for me to be talking to people about things that I knew all, you know, that I could relate to and mm. to not be relating to them, you know, it just felt um, so unnatural when I was in those conversations with people for me to not actually, like, relate and identify with people. Um, but but as, as stigma came up as this sort of huge thing as well, I just thought, how can I make a series about women and addiction, saying that stigma is one is it's much so much more stigmatized for women, and then not and then not share my own experience, like be hiding behind some kind of like, well, I'm just a yeah. <laughs> you know, um, it's nothing to do with me. Um, uh, so it didn't, you know, did it just felt like the right thing to do. I didn't like draw on loads of my experience or going. I didn't like him with my war stories or anything like that 
uh, that I'll save that for the next one. But, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it felt you know, it it felt um, like the right thing to do, and and certainly you know, like that was where a lot of my questions were coming from, and that's why I think I could ask different. You know, I, I felt that as I sort of went on, that felt like a more um, valid approach to be coming from. Um, uh, yeah, certainly in, in areas where there is a lack of research, and I was like thinking, you know, we were talking, uh, um, you know, about uh, the like the crossover between eating disorders and addiction and it being particularly prevalent in women. Obviously, it's something that does also affect men as well, um, but it's very prevalent. Um, and that's something that I knew from my friends, from myself, from my own life. Um, and that wasn't something that was well um, uh, researched or well documented or that I could find people who were academic or experts to talk to me particularly about. There were a couple, of course, um, but, uh, yeah, for that something like that, I mean, it was absolutely key. So that felt like, yeah, the right so thing So there's, there's two points within that that I think mm. we've already hit upon already is that there is a discrepancy in language that we use within this, this issue. Um, so what, what, Jenny, are the things that flag up for you that... Because I, I don't think you like the word recovery. Um, what other words should we be more conscious of and possibly replace there's two things going on here though there's my personal taste and then there's the way it was sort of hammered into me when i was reading the book writing the book which is um australia's had a a harm minimization national drug strategy since 1985 so the language you use is very person-centered which i like happily so um you know nobody's an addict or an alcoholic even addiction's a bit Mm. Um, it's a person with, uh, you know, who's experienced problematic drug use, not abuse. Um, I, I, apart from when I used to go to AA meetings where you have to, I never called myself an alcoholic. I was very uncomfortable with that. Um, I called myself a problem drinker or a chaotic drinker, you know. Um, and I, I feel that if you stick your hand up and say, I've got a problem with drugs or alcohol, and you go and get some kind of treatment or go to 12-step meetings and suddenly in everyone's eyes you're an alcoholic or an addict whereas before you were you were fine you know um and I felt that probably depends which groups you go to but I felt in most AA groups it was only the pointy end of the room who had severe severe dependency uh but people kind of forget that there are levels of dependency because that's levels of dependency isn't a phrase that's bandied around very much um so, you know, I can't compare what my drinking looks like, which is really chaotic and, like, self-flagellation and very psychologically driven with, you know, my mates who end up in hospital all the time or, you know, get behind the wheel in a blackout. They're just different. Um, so that's why I think we need to be really careful with language. And so I'm often saying to people who've got lived experience problematic drug use and then they'll say well I, I call myself an addict actually yeah. which is totally their right but I'm going to be really careful given that I'm the journalist in this situation as well yeah I suppose it's it's not focusing on labeling people at the end of the day is uh, and that's where stigma comes in and this is something we've, we've spoken about and I think women do probably um, and it's probably going to be easy for me to say as a man but I'd imagine that women suffer stigma from this subject more than what men do because of certain things like motherhood and things like that is that been your experience as well 
Not my personal experience, because I was a music journalist and I don't have kids, so I was living in uh, a traditionally male domain and uh, I don't think I earned special disapproval. Um, but certainly, yeah, if you've got kids or you don't move in those kind of circles, then you're seen... If you have a, a big drug or alcohol issue, then you're seen as unfeminine, unnurturing, it's unwomanly, it's unnatural... Um, and you're also kind of... You've got very low social currency. You're going to be bottom of the pile. Even if you're moving in within sort of drug-using drug circles, you're going to be bottom of that pile because of that disapproval level. Although also because you might not necessarily be paying for your drugs because you might not need to. So that also puts you down the hierarchy a bit. You speak about hierarchy a lot in the book, don't you? And how those the, the drug cultures, in quotation marks, that come with it, a lot of times women are at the bottom of the pile because... They can be subservient in certain relationships that yeah. come with drug circles and things like that. Yeah, there's a chapter called A Crude Form of Seduction, which is what a um, Brisbane-based clinician told me he calls that transaction where um, men, might, you, men might sort of attract women using drugs or women are using men because they get the drugs. Um, I, I think... Personally, I was attracted to much older men and it was because they had the drugs and because it was like a, a big package, you know. Mm. They, were, they were men and they had the drugs. So I was actively seeking them out. So it wasn't like I was coerced into taking drugs. But that, that does then create this power imbalance. Um, and so this clinician was saying to me, you know, teenage girls who are his clients say to him, but it's good, you know, I'm getting drugs for free. And he's like, well, what's the going rate on the street for a blowjob? Because I think you're selling yourself short. And you make that point very clear in the book that just because it's not necessarily fungible goods, there's still commodity within certain points of sale. Not only commodity, but, you know, lasting uh, accumulative damage that you can't put a price on and that you don't, maybe at a young age aren't aware that it's happening. And... You, you, I mean, you lay it all out. On the, well, you make it very clear in the book that you, you started drinking from a very early age. Um, and as you said, you was attracted to older men. Was there a point where substance use inherently came within that? Because chances are older men were using substances, so therefore that is what you kind of looked up to. I, I was really into heavy metal from the age of about 10. So everything I read in terms of Kerrang! magazine and bios was all about drugs and alcohol so I was very already tuned into it and then I started around puberty getting library books out about drugs and you know reading things like Go Ask Alice like it was a shopping list so that interest was absolutely always there and then the next step is well where do you get drugs from you get them from older men even if that's just the most innocent sort of first step where you're like at school thinking who can I buy a pot from you know, it's always going to be somebody a couple of years above you at school and probably a bloke. <laughs> and, and you make this very clear in your radio series as well, Millie, that there were a case study that you spoke to. Um, she was completely co in, coerced into using heroin by a controlling partner. And, and this happens quite a lot of in our sort of experience as well, that people are just coerced through the relationships they're in. Yeah. Yeah, it was definitely something that came up that um, women are much more likely to be introduced to drugs by their partner um I don't think that was the case for me I think I pretty much I feel like I like Jenny I pretty much sought these I sought out you know yes I actually it might have been it 
you know, the first time I took like hard drugs might have been through a partner, but I think I pretty much made a beeline for that person for that reason, you know. Um, but yeah, I do also think going back to like the stigma stuff, I also think that, um, you know, a lot of women sex work to fund their addiction. I think that's why there's another uh, layer of stigma for women as well as, as motherhood, as well as, you know, it just not being very ladylike. It's just not a very, what a nice girl does. Is it, do you know what I mean? Um, and, um, and that's the that's a barrier to treatment. Stigma is a barrier to treatment. We know that from like the AIDS epidemic. You know, if you destigmatize something, people are more likely to seek treatment. So, stigma is a big issue for women. I mean, it's just not does you know it. Yeah, and I that was again, and that was something that I sort of like instinctively saw. I saw like a lot of my male friends from recovery were quite kind of like it was a bit edgy, yeah. it's a bit cool, yeah, <laughs> yeah. but I've got a bit of, bit of a past and. Whereas uh, most women I knew were like trying to kind of hide, you know, at that time I was as well, trying to very much hide this shameful past of mine. Um, it wasn't something I felt could integrate into, in, into uh, a kind of respectable new life. Um, yeah. I, th so. I think it was you that made the example that there was two examples within the same year, I think it was, where Philip Seymour Hoffman died. Yeah. And then Peaches Geldof yeah. died. And the two different media reports on the figures were yeah. just completely polarising. Yeah, and I think that was part... I mean, that was definitely kind of quite formative. I was um, newly in recovery at that time and, um, and newly... I was having in my first job at the time and I was in an office and I remember the kind of reaction to both of those and I remember um, the things I heard after Peaches... Geldof's uh, death about, you know, the fact that she was a mother mm. and it, I, you know, I kind of, I felt that you, I internalised that, you know, that judgement that she should know better, you know mm. she should know better um, so that re that really kind of yeah, that, w that was very like kind of formative, I think, for me in terms of wanting to sort of get into this subject I suppose, yeah, because it was absolutely yeah, I mean, the two reactions were like absolutely mm polar opposites. You still see it today, don't you? There's still yeah. examples going on, um, which kind of leads me slightly to the question that, um, and I think this is something that, Jenny, you, you quite often talk about in the book, is that d do women have uh, an impulsive behaviour more than men? Um, impulsivity expresses itself differently in women. So um, most, of, most, most of the mental health field is <laughs> very gendered um, and perhaps wrongly. Um, it's quite gendered stereotypically, so there are certain things that are considered to be more affecting women and certain things more affecting men. Women and gay men, straight men. It would express itself through things like theft, high-risk sex. Um, women actually, um, so far as my studies tell me, um, are more likely to experiment with drugs earlier and smoking. Um, so... It's those kind of more stealthy activities rather than, you know, train surfing and, um, you know, doing something a bit more sort of uh, dangerous and, and to express yourself flamboyantly. Um, train surfing? Train surfing. Get on top of a thing? train. I don't think so. No, it, it happens <laughs> here. No. <laughs> Trust me, yeah. Yeah, oh, so right. it's more... I miss that one. <laughs> That's it what it says on the tip. It also ties in with the fact that we, we tend to turn distress inwards, so we take things out on our body. Um, so we might do things like self-harm or, you know, there's a triumvirate 
triumvirate of behaviour is self-harm, is substance use, and there's eating disorders. And I really see it as kind of acts of aggression against the body where we're turning our impulsivity and aggression inwards rather than, you know, starting a fight with somebody else. Um, and to me, um, a lot of problematic substance use is is kind of trying to grasp back autonomy over your own body. So if you're a woman and you, I don't know, you've experienced sexual abuse or you've just never felt as much ownership over your own body as other people seem to, then to, to do something like use drugs, to, to put a needle in you or to, to, to put your fingers down your throat or to harm yourself is a way of saying, well, this is mine. Mm. And, and that does come up quite often, doesn't it? The, the sexual abuse link to addiction. Um, and this is something you certainly picked up on in the radio shows, is that there is so many different women out there that have, they're, they're almost survival raft is, is substance use because of their past. Um, it must have been really difficult to, to interview people that have that raw in, in their life circumstances and emotion that comes with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, there's also, you know, like... So if we're going into kind of a sort of trauma link, I mean, there's definitely, I definitely know a lot of men also you know, um, who do have that that link and have the, have had those experiences. But um, sorry, the question was, was it difficult to interview them? No, actually, no. Um, I mean, I, you know, I have a big community around me of people and we talk about these things. So, so I it's feel quite like open. for me, it's not... Uh, yeah, I mean... Um, uh, couple of the people who um, were in the series were, were people I, I knew, like not necessarily like my best mates or anything, mm. but they were people I knew and had spoken to and had a kind of prior um, kind of relationship of some, you know, uh, of some kind. So I don't know. I don't know if it was... Um, I don't know if it felt... It felt, it felt quite natural because I kind of have conversations like that with people on a fairly regular basis, I suppose, in my life. Does that, does that come from, because you've spoken openly about your own recovery, sorry to use that word, Jenny, but um, you've spoken openly. Like I, I just find it really American, and um, yeah. sorry to any American listeners, but a bit, a bit over the top. Mm. It's a bit sort of melodramatic, you know, what, and you're in it forever. What is the, the better phrase to use within that? I, I heard um, Professor Sir John Strang oh, yeah, yeah. Um, from King's College say, disengage. Oh, okay. So that yeah. implies you've, you, you've disengaged from it and then, you know, you might be on some kind of treatment plan, but you're not forever in this kind of nether world um, called recovery. And the word recovery, you know, it sounds like you would recover and then you're off, but that's not really the way it's used, is it? It's your, your new permanent state, and I object to that. That's completely fair. And this is where we need to be educated from people that have been through it because, you know, we could be striking upon language that's just completely stigmatising to you without us even realising it. Well, like, no, I, self, I self-identify as being in recovery, so... I'll see this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. so, well, so depending on what circles I'm in, I say I'm recovered or I'm in recovery. Mm. Um, uh, both mean the same thing to me. Um, I, active, I take active daily... I do things every day... And I live my life in a certain way in order to stop me from returning to drugs because left to my own devices, that's exactly what I, I will do. And that's been proven many, many times. So, um, and for me, like, I, for me, it is pretty dramatic. I mean, the dramatic, the difference in my life now is pretty dramatic. You know, there's been a 
huge turnaround. Like, I don't think, um, yeah, I mean, it's not, it's like as different as day and night, basically. So, I'm, and I do, and I do feel very consciously in, like, in recovery, you know, I start my day in a certain way, I finish my day in a certain way, I talk to people on a daily basis for that purpose, really. So it is quite, I mean, it's integrated a natural part of my life, but it is a very conscious part of my life. Um, so and I suppose that's a, a different, I mean, that's the, that's, that's the difference. So yeah. it's a constant process that you're still going through each day. Yeah, yeah. Is that, is, um, this is going to be the most stupid, so understated question in the world. So you're going to have to talk to me one way and Jenny another way. You're going to have to switch it off. Oh, God, yeah. Can we do like a split screen, Tristan? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, yeah, it's, this is going to be a stupidly understated question, but is it is it still hard to be in that situation or is, is it got easier? Um, what? So people think, is it hard not to take drugs or is it hard not to have a drink? Um no, I mean, life is hard, isn't it? Life is full of... Sometimes, yeah, sometimes it's amazing. Um, oh, it's a kind of a big question. I mean... Yeah, I mean... I'm glad you're taking it as a good question <laughs> and not a bad question. Cause <laughs> no, it's not. Like, that's no, but just... I mean, I don't feel like I want to... I don't feel like, oh, I've got to stay away from temptation or avoid triggers or, you know, I go wherever I want. I go out and have a normal social life. I live with young people who take drugs and drink i live in a house which has an alcohol cabinet i live in a warehouse actually uh, so you know and there's plenty of drugs around me i'm not hiding from temptation i'm living my life i'm free um but that's contingent on certain things that i do in order to stay kind of um kind of co- like connected to a certain level of truth about myself and a certain um yeah certain sort of consciousness really I have and I have and there's lots of things that I do such as like making sure I'm helping other people mm. on it um and not kind of spending too long on my own um but the I but yeah it doesn't so it doesn't come up as like a uh, a temptation to use drugs particularly or to take or to have a drink that's not the hard thing the hard thing is like living life and accepting the reality of life sometimes, which can be hard for all human beings, because you know you never know what's around the corner. Things don't always go your way. Other people and stuff like that, you know, just other people. That's the hardest thing. <laughs> they just do what I wanted them to do. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be so much simpler. Well, that's, that's the irony <laughs> of this podcast, because as you said, it's other yeah. people. And yeah. when, when we all spoke on the phone, we all had a very s- a similar conversational thread of you'd been to a barbecue, you'd been doing media work, I'd mm. been doing my thing, whatever God that is. And we all said, oh, making small talk is exhausting. Yeah. And we've all got that kind of personality type, haven't we, where yeah. other people seem to be exhausting. Mm. And is that yeah. a route into substance use of kind of social lubrication for want of a stupid term but is is that a, another route into it yeah absolutely social anxiety is huge um i never really learned to be social because i started at 13 which is that age you know when you've just started um secondary school and you you're no longer a child you've got to learn these new kind of rules and, and etiquette that never really happened um i sort of skipped all that and whenever I even met up with friends, you know, I'd have a drink first, I'd preload, and uh, eventually it gets to the point, I remember, I remember right towards the end, um, 
22 years into drinking, I was at a work event and it was a music industry event and I had to introduce myself in a room full of my peers. We had to do it one by one and just say, you know, where, where I worked. And I was panicking as it got closer to me because I hadn't been able to have some drinks first. And all I had to do was say my name. And that was a bit of a defining moment of, wow, this has got really pathetic. You can't, you've got to a point, you've taken a path of release resistance every time we've had to do something difficult by, by drinking or taking drugs, like speed, which made me really social, that you now can't, you can't um, actually sort of interact with people without it. And so when I quit, I had to learn how to do everything for the first time, like get on the train home and not buy something for the journey and, you know, just everything, everything I had to do for the first time. It's kind of exciting in a way. And you realise this is like working a muscle, you know, you, you really do, everything does get easier. But I felt pretty angry that I'd put off doing all these things for so long and, and taken that path of least resistance, which probably was actually a lot harder. <laughs> So a bit of group therapy. Is there is there anybody else that would say they've got sort of social anxiety, sort of not understanding social etiquette, or yeah, I'm going to put the end up here. It is it's, it's strange, isn't it? I mean, one of the one of the questions that you kind of folded back to me, Jenny, was that women that don't understand social etiquette mm. fall neatly into their gender role. This is literally quoting you here. Yeah. Uh, often run into trouble. Uh, and I think that's a really good line. Yeah. Um, so it, it, it doesn't have to be a diagnosable thing, but, for instance, women, you know, who have Asperger's or, or um, something where it's you feel more uncomfortable socially, it's possibly a little bit more difficult for women, women because we're conditioned to be the, people, the glue of society, right? So, you know, we're the ones who have to buy the nibbles, put on the event, invite everyone, make sure they come, make sure your, your partner gets dressed and do the socialising, make sure everyone feels comfortable. And, and if that's just not you, then you're not really playing ball. Um, I definitely thought I was a bloke's bloke, which really just meant I had no idea how to make small talk, I think. And men do that less. And so then I embarked on this kind of lifestyle where you, you only sort of hang out with the men in a social group and then the women don't trust you and it becomes a real mess. Um, so it didn't work out too well for me. So I've had to learn again from scratch to walk in a room, talk to the women first. Um, here are some conversation starters, <laughs> <Yeah>. you know. <laughs> are you the same, Millie? Have you got that same sort of social awkwardness that I certainly relate to when Jenny says that? Yeah, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, I definitely... It's sort of, when I was younger, I mean, I just remember as a child just feeling so other, feeling so different, so awkward. So I just felt, I felt like um, I was empty, blank person and I just absorbed other people's personal. I didn't know who I was. I was lost, empty and felt like, I mean, on the outside, I looked like I fitted in, do you know what I mean? Because yeah. I, could, I could pick up on social, I could dress in the right way, I could kind of say you know get into the right things you know so music was a huge thing for me from an early age that was like my my kind of tribe forming um sort of uh focus I guess um but yeah but I suppose you know so so my so my experience when I first you know took ecstasy for example was just like oh wow like I finally feel 
this is, I can be who I want to be. I like, I'm all right. You know, like that self-obsession, that self hatred, that awkwardness, like, oh my God, if I move this way, am I, do I look weird? Like, are they looking at me? You know, suddenly I just didn't care. And I was like, I just went from this kind of very introverted, very self, like very shy person to suddenly like being like the life and soul of the party. So it worked, you know, so drugs, did something to me that was really transformational. Like, it absolutely, like, I felt like I, it was a spiritual experience. I knew I knew what I was wanted to do with my life, which was just, you know, party. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and I finally, finally found a way to enjoy life, because life was so, like, painful up until that point. Um, I don't think that's what makes me an addict, but it's certainly, like, it ties in with the sort of... Um, I'm not a neuroscientist, so I'm not going to be able to explain it, but it ties in with the thing that there is something in, our, in a, a certain brain receptors, like mine, that just goes bing, 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 like traffic lights. You know, I put um, something mood-altering into my system and it goes ping, and, and you know, and I want more, mm. basically. Um, and I think, um, so... But I just kind of... I, I just wanted to, like, say, you know, for me... The defining sort of thing of my of of me why I refer to myself as an addict is that it's the relapsing nature of it. You know, it's like it wasn't I had a problem with drugs and alcohol and then I stopped. I made a decision not to do it again or to you know that was bad. I'm not going to do it. What I did is many many times made that decision and went back to it against my better judgment, against all logic, against all reason. You know, my life would improve and then in a split second this thought would come and I'd have no power to resist it and that was I went through this cycle of getting cleaning up relapsing cleaning up life improving relapsing cleaning up relapsing and that was like absolutely heartbreaking and terrifying and soul destroying and um yeah and and I I kind of realized I mean I had a moment where I just thought I'm I I remember being in a rehab again like maybe my sixth one or something and and just thinking i'm gonna i'm gonna use again my life's gonna get better again i'm probably gonna build bridges with my family again and i might even get like a nice job or something like that and then one day i'll just turn left instead of turning right and that's what it felt like it felt like i was walking on a nice jet edge i was so kind of um yeah i just didn't know what that day was going to look like because it happened in so many different ways good day bad day you know like good job, no job, boyfriend, no boyfriend, you know, like, all the circles, I've gone through so many different yeah. times that happening. I just felt like there's no, there's no predictable reason for me for this to happen again, and I need, like, a serious, something seriously needs to change, um, and that's, that was me, like, that was, like, for me, a kind of a moment of, like, okay, there's, there's something different going on here. Yeah, that I can't that I can't fix with my own brain, that I can't fix with logic because I'd had a lot of therapy, I'd had a lot of treatment, um, and so yeah, so that was. Um, and that's something I learned within both of your works is mm. how relatable substance use is to eating disorders. Mm. I had no idea of this realm, and and both of you educated me on it. And we do find that a lot of times, certainly people that are in rehab and, and recovery. Again, I'm using the quotation marks, Jenny. They tend to have um, eating disorders because chances are if they've had a substance use, then weight has stabilised. But then as soon as they're not on a substance, then weight might might start to fluctuate. We were just saying, actually, we were we met up beforehand and we both had the experience of when we gave up drugs and alcohol, we both turned to bulimia. I didn't imagine that we did say that, didn't we? 
yeah, yes, yeah. Yes, we did, yeah. Yeah, we did. And <laughs> um, yeah, just immediately for me, like, yeah. the, that same day. Yeah. I didn't notice for a while. Yeah, totally. Um, and I had a, an eating disorder that... Um, uh, predisposing eating disorder I was that was my first thing and I told I mean for me and I can't talk for anyone else and that's what I'm I'm not talking for anyone else I'm only talking for me and my experience how I how I see my life um I um see absolutely my addiction is uh, sorry my the eating disorder is kind of just like another side of the same coin of my addiction the things that help it are the same things that help all of it you know like it's a holistic thing um, and I guess that was one of my frustrations um, in my life was that I was sort of bouncing between eating disorder. You know, I've been hospitalised for eating disorders. Then I'd go to rehabs. Then the rehab. Then I'd be in the rehab. They'd be like, you can't if you're acting out on your eating disorder. You're going to be asked to leave. And I was just caught in this kind of no man's land where no one really wanted to deal with all of me. They only wanted to deal with one thing at a time. And if you're a person who's suffering from multiple things you can't necessarily put, you know, one thing first and prioritise one thing. And also people, um, I felt like people underestimated how horrendous, you know, I would have killed myself if I hadn't recovered from my eating disorder. I would have either died of, like, the repercussion, you know, eating disorders is, that has a really high mortality rate. But people in, I'd find people would be like, um, oh, it's not going to kill you, is it? And I'm like, no, it actually is. Like, I have actually been hospitalised. Um, you know, it's had some pretty seriously dire consequences, like the kind of, the, the absolute self-loathing and depression that came with an eating disorder was horrendous. And, and drugs felt like a solution to that at times, you know. Mm. Um, so I was just kind of on this cycle. Um, so, yeah, so to having, you know, I was in, I just felt very um, frustrated. And, and misunderstood, you know, it just didn't feel like it was something that was spoken about. And as I've kind of moved forward in my journey of healing or recovery, whatever you want to call it, I'm quite open about that stuff now. And the, and whenever I talk about it in a sort of a meeting setting or any setting or in a public setting, certainly from my series, I had a lot of people get in touch. Uh, I just get so many women coming, or particularly women and men, I always feel like, I don't know why I feel like I always have to make that caveat. But, um, uh, yeah, a lot of women come forward and go, oh, I've not, I've not heard people talking about this before. Um, yeah, so it feels like it's, it's kind of being underserved in terms of um, treatment or just understanding or acceptance, really. And it's certainly a theme that runs through your book, Jenny, is that it's not just treating the cocaine addiction or the alcohol addiction it's about treating the person because mm. if it's not that as, as we said it's, it's potentially eating disorder or it's self-harm they, they all seem to be part of the package don't they yeah and um again this is uh kind of drummed into me coming from harm minimization australia but you know i don't see addiction as a disease so i don't see it as i don't see it about being the drug i don't see it about being alcohol i see it as my approach is biopsychosocial, so I see it as a combination of, you know, your environment, um, things you've inherited, like anxiety or uh, impulsivity, um, availability when you're growing up. Uh, you know, it's, it's a whole melting pot of things. And that's very interesting as well, the fact that you have got the perspective of Australia to the UK, because they say harm minimisation, we say harm reduction. Yeah. Is there much other difference that you found between the two cultures? Um, I think 
the drinking styles are a bit different, even though um, both countries go quite hard. In England, it seems to be kind of lemming off a cliff, kind of almost violent drinking. So there'll be people celebrating drinking. that right now, listening to that, like, yes, we got it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, it's the tray of shots, it's drinking in rounds. Australians don't tend to drink in rounds, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, whereas over there, it's more like you're, you're soft if you don't have a, a beer in your hands most of the time. It's a bit of a different kind of attitude. Um, and then, you know, the drug patterns are different. Over there is a huge meth problem, and... Um, um, over here, you know, I'm hearing about Xanax and things like that, which aren't so much of a problem over there. So it's just patterns and availability. How about spice? Is spice hit out there? Not really. I mean, it, it was getting used a bit to dodge, um, you know, the, the piss tests. Oh, yeah. yeah. We've got a, a lot of fly-in, fly-out miners who get tested, for instance. Um, but nowhere near... Well, it doesn't make headlines like it does here anyway. I think, I think it makes a lot of headlines here, but it's really in little pockets, isn't it? Mm. So it's not like, you know... You go out into the street and you're going to spot people necessarily on it like you would with methamphetamine in Australia. And sometimes as well it's about the, the, the media hype of a substance. You know, yeah. All of a sudden we've got a new bad guy, which is something, again, you dress in your book. Um, yeah. Women of Substances, by the way, I don't think I've said it enough. Yeah. <laughs> Women of Substances by Jenny Valentish. And you do, you, you make that point that you, you grew up with certain grub, uh, drug cultures. You, know, you followed bands around. Um, speed was quite a big part of your life as well. Mm. Um, is that useful to have your own experiences with with the drug cultures at the time as a journalist? Uh, what in terms of reputation and yeah, right. Um, I, I told myself it was. <laughs> uh, you know, certainly people used to do people used to smoke in the office and at certain places I worked at do coke in the loos and oh really yeah and after work drinks were a big thing. That's probably the same in all sorts of fields really. Um, I used speed for creativity, definitely. I would put it in my drink first thing in the morning and write. Um, or I used it when I was a PR too, so I could bear to talk to people. That's uh, really the wrong profession for me. <laughs> Get on the phone all day and spruik things. Um, so yeah, it was it was part of my toolkit. Which also relates back to what we were saying as well about rituals. Um, if it's not the ritual of drug use to get you through a certain situation, then it's the ritual of bulimia, of um, you know drinking cultures. You know, the, a lot of times we're all enwrapped in rituals. We just don't even know it. Mm. Uh, are they playing a bigger part in addiction than what we realise? Is it more environmental than we can possibly imagine? The, the rituals... Uh, y- yeah, I was worried that when I quit... I was worried about two things, that I would lose my identity, and which I did for a bit, and that I would lose that sense of getting one over people sneaking around. That's kind of a ritual That's, in Yeah, itself. that runs quite current through the book, doesn't it? Yes. Yeah. Um, just having, you know, a bottle of vodka in your bag at all times or going to the bar and having the extra drink and bringing back the one for you and the one for your mate kind of thing. <laughs> all that sort of thing, I thought... That's like almost like me time. That's my special thing. How am I going to cope without this kind of stealthy stuff? But actually, I think going to AA for the first year and a half helped a lot. In that, I was so gazumped by how strange and new it all was that it was an incredible distraction. You couldn't ask for more of a distraction. There's tons of reading materials. There's slogans. There's new people. So I didn't really notice losing that kind of sneaky aspect. 
How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. How, how do you cope when the rituals stop, Millie? Because we've all got examples of that, whether it's exercise, watching EastEnders, or some, that we've all got points of rituals that are self-soothing, which is another line from Jenny's book, which I love. Uh, what happens when they stop and you are in recovery? What do you do to fill those gaps? Well, I suppose I do have, um, like, recovery rituals. Um, and that is that is kind of, I guess, yeah, that's replaced it, I suppose. Um, yeah, I mean, I meditate every morning. Um, I call people. I have, yeah, there's lots of things in, there's lots of, through the type of recovery that I've done, there is, you know, it's built a kind of an infrastructure around me where I've got responsibilities to others. I have, uh, think, you know, um, I'm accountable. Um, and yeah, I do have quite, I have, that is the structure that the rest of my life kind of fits into. Is, is there a taboo, uh, and I think you're not gonna, gonna know where I'm going with this, of can people start reintroducing certain behaviors that might have been problematic? Can they start introducing them in their life after a certain point? Yes, I did. Um, yeah, so I, I didn't drink for eight years. And um, in that time, I, I did a lot of therapy. I um, moved to the country. I got actual interests for myself. You know, I, I've got my job still, but writing went sort of hand in hand with addiction, so it's not really, doesn't really count. But I do things like I volunteer in kangaroo rescue. And I paddleboard and I roller skate and um, I've got a really supportive partner. So my life doesn't look anything like it used to. And, you know, that was a gradual process over eight years. And then last year, I reintroduced alcohol again, sort of mindfully. 
was going to smart recovery meetings, which um, in Australia have more of a harm in ethos than they do over here. So, you know, half the group might be moderating whatever it is they're there for. Smart recovery is different to 12-step in that it's, it focuses on what did the past week look like, what were the challenges, um, and then what's, what's the coming seven days going to be like, your goals and challenges there. Um, and I continue to see this addiction psychologist. So I monitor everything. Um, and I, I even joined the Smart Recovery Board in Australia. And I said to them, you're aware that I'm moderating my drinking now, right? And they're like, no, that's great. Oh, you know, because yeah. we, we want to be clear that we do have a harm minimization ethos. And that can mean abstinence at one end of the spectrum. And at the other end, it can mean, you know, you, you choosing your own sort of path of use. Because that's fascinating to me because a lot of times treatment in this country tends to be really fixated on abstinence. And, and to have that discussion of can you start doing moderate use is, is something that is quite interesting to us. I don't know how you feel about Millie. What, how does it fit with your position? Um, I don't think anyone who knows me would recommend <laughs> I ever, ever experiment with any kind of mood-altering substance ever again. Um, so it's very I think there's different... I think, with, you know, I, and I mean, this is something that um, obviously is something where, like... Jenny and I's experience kind of differs and uh, um, and I like absolutely obviously clearly Jenny's doing great but for me it's not it's not but I mean how do you how do you know how do you distinguish whether you're that person who can after a period of time drink again and I see and I was one of those people who thought after a period of time maybe I could have a drink again and it didn't go very well at all um so yeah so I wouldn't do it again uh I wouldn't want to do it again but you know I'm I might that's the that's the nature of of the beast really um I could never say I can never say never um I think I mean you know most people you know I don't know I mean I you know maybe with I think also I see yeah I think for most for some for a lot of people that's fatal you know I also have lost a lot of friends that way um, it depends what kind of you know what your experience is, um, whether you're whether it's really worth experimenting with that. If it's like Russian roulette, why would you bother? You know, I mean, there's a small chance that I might be able to by some kind of miraculous, I don't know, like you know, <laughs> you don't know, do you? But um, it seems like so, it would seem seem so so risky for someone of my experience, you know. And and why would I want to? I felt like I was say, you know, like I. I found something much more satisfying on a much deeper, more fulfilling kind of way of life that I don't miss it anyway, so why why would I? You know, I go to social events, I, I, and it's not something I feel would add anything to my life whatsoever, so why would I take that risk, I guess? It just ties in, though, with what mm. I was saying at the beginning, which is... Is, does everyone who, put, everyone who puts their hands up and says, I need help with you know, my drug or alcohol use, does that automatically make them you know, a one-size-fits-all um, addict or alcoholic? Mm -hmm. Or are there levels of dependence and different people's reasons for drinking and taking drugs were different drives? And I don't feel like mine was you know, perhaps that much of a genetic... Um, I don't think that the reason for me was that genetic. I think it was a result of childhood trauma and sort of setting on a certain path and not 
exploring other options and just having this one sort of mm. coping mechanism. So, you know, I could always stop. There was never the problem that I couldn't stop. Um, but it, it was just a habit that went on and on and on, and I saw no reason to break it because it kind of suited me as a persona. Um, I was a very angry person, and it kind of fed that anger in quite a satisfying way. So for me, it feels like it was very psychological, and I've got friends who, you know, like you say, they've they've tried drinking again. It's been an absolute disaster, and, you know, it's really terrifying seeing them in that state and you think this is not going to end well i just think that not everyone fits into that category we could almost do a podcast on that whole discussion yeah, no, alone. they totally don't and i you know i think but it's very how do you how do you differentiate and potentially how do you make that call you know and because the the risk is that you die basically do you know what i mean i see enough people enough i've lost enough friends over the years um, who've gone back and experimented with drugs or alcohol again and and not made it back to life, basically. You know, have not made it back, have not drawn another clean breath. So, I mean, how do you make that call? I mean, I suppose... I mean, I know that, um, Jenny, obviously you've had, like, access to some kind of good therapy and mm. support and stuff like that. I mean, it's just, yeah... I suppose it's difficult, but I but I absolutely agree with that, and I think you know often we get people who perhaps are coming, I don't know, you know, who who maybe could again, and I do I do see the odd one mm. <laughs> or two who who go who come into like recovery circles for a little while. They thanks very much for for the information, and I'll be all right now, and and are all right. I mean, I don't know because I don't hear from them mm. again, you know, but you know, I'm sure that that's. That's the case. I'm, you know, you can only kind of like see things through your own personal mm. lens, I guess, in terms of that. But yeah, I mean, for me, it would be absolutely, you know, it would be a ridiculously risky and probably fatal mm. experiment to take. So it's not something that I'm like, yeah, it's much easier for me just to accept that's something I can't do. Mm. That's one part of life that isn't for me, hasn't worked out too well in the past. There's plenty of other great things in life. I'll focus on them. <laughs> All right. Have we got questions? Um, so I used to volunteer in Australia, actually, um, with a drug and alcohol rehabilitation drop-in. Was it Drug Arm that you went to at all? No, it was Turning Point. Okay, sure. Um, so you said that, you know, obviously recovery is a journey and a process that's different for everyone. Um, are there people who define it in different ways? Because when I think back to the clients that I had, you know, there were people who would have like 40 drinks a day. And then for them, obviously, it was high minimization um, and also like decreasing and not abstinence. So he felt satisfied when he got down to like 13 drinks a day. You know, for him, that was him being recovered. So um, is that something that is like different for you guys? Obviously, you've gone down the path of abstinence and for you, you've started to introduce it back in. Um, I don't know what my question was. Anyway, do you have any comments on that? <laughs> I think it is so different for everyone. Um, but I would never have been able, by the way, to moderate my drinking, having gone from where it was and then just tried to do what the guy that you're mentioning did. It needed that massive eight-year, you know, complete cutoff. Um, and I also would never advocate that people try it either. I don't want to be, you know, saying this is a good idea. This is just what I'm doing. Uh, any thoughts? 
I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I definitely got, got offered some of that help um, in the early days about, you know, kind of drinks diaries, hum, you know, and, and that just didn't work for me. And that might work for some people and, like, absolutely fair pay to them. And I'm all for harm minimisation, which absolutely saves lives. For me, it's an all-or-nothing deal. That's how what I've learned about myself through hard, bitter experience. And actually, I went to when I was in like in drug and alcohol services. I was often like people wanted to put me on medication like methadone and Subutex, and I didn't want that because I wanted to detox and be clean. But I was told I had to jump through these hoops, and that seemed to me unfair. Um, I mean, there was one time where. I'd I'd relapsed and I'd literally I'd relapsed I'd only been using for a month and I was told I had to do a three-month methadone program in order to even be considered for detox where I'd only been using a month after some years clean that just to me seemed like you know I knew I didn't want to be hooked on a on a drug that's even harder to come off and um, I wasn't heard I guess in that experience as well so I suppose you know it's it's difficult though isn't it you know it's not a one-size-fits-all solution um, and and unfortunately the services are massively under-resourced underfunded um, and under-researched so you know <laughs> what are you gonna do that's, that's a good place to conclude is that what do we do from this point on because as you said Everything is under-researched, underfunded. Certainly not having these conversations. Uh, so what do we do? Where's, what's the routes forward? Well. <laughs> just, just solve it for us right now. I'm going to carry on doing what I do. It's a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the only thing I, could, I want to mention there is that there are some... Um, there, are, there are a lot of people in the early intervention kind of area. Um, in the last few years, and particularly aimed at women... You've had lots of people, sober women, designing courses or communities for other sober women. And, you know, they're not led by a medical professional. And hopefully they make that clear. But um, definitely there are more places for people who are starting to question their use, mm -hmm. usually just alcohol, um, to find a bit of a, a community and find um, a network of like-minded people. Also, Hello Sunday Morning, and they have an app called Daybreak, which... Um, is a sort of behaviour change programme. So in the early intervention space, there's a lot of kind of improvement and innovative thoughts. In terms of, you know, actual services like um, detoxes and rehabs and how they're failing people with eating disorders and, and people who, need, who have a dual diagnosis, that's just a huge, huge issue. Um, and it seems like uh, everything's so siloed, I can't really, I can't really imagine how it's all going to come together. I've, I do feel hopeful, though. I feel hopeful that we're having, like, more conversations around this, these kinds of things. I feel like just in the last couple of years, and I mean, I know I'm in a very privileged position the, at the moment, but I, you know, for, that I'm able to be open about this stuff and I feel like I'm not going to be kind of a social outcast. I think that's, that's a massive shift from, like, 10 years ago. I think, I think attitudes are changing and I think if we can have more open discussion, I think that's obviously a positive thing. I feel optimistic um, about the next generation. They're going to save us all coming through, yeah. What a perfect line to finish on. <laughs> so if you could give us a quick round of applause for the play out, please. Thank you so much for that. And please do get Jenny's book. Jenny's going to sign it, if that's sure. right. Sure. If I can get you to sign it. <laughs>
I fully put my hands up that I was more of a spectator than a participant in that conversation. There was so much that I learned from Jenny and Millie. Both of them, both journalists themselves that are fantastic at what they do, but also they've got lived experience. They've been through this. They know what they're talking about. So thank you so much for participating in that. And one on one thank yous. Thank you to Tristan and, and Nikki, the producers of Stop and Search. Thank you for all you do. There's going to be some visuals that come out with this particular podcast as well. We recorded it on the evening and we're going to put some things out on that. So keep your eyes open, quite literally. And thank you. My name is Ad for the artwork you do. Thank you to Scoobius Pip and the whole of the Distraction Pieces Network. Make sure you listen to all of those. Thank you so much for listening. Please, if you can as well, give us a rating on iTunes and share us around on social media. It massively helps. It really does. So until next time, and it will be a next time because the, the issue of addiction and drug policy isn't going away yet. We're building a conversation. This is what we need to keep doing. So until then, if you can share us around, and I'll see you next time. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Behind your barricades. Yeah, but how long can I stay? Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.